Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. It's just great to be with you. And uh, today's the first of two parts uh, series called Breaking Racial and Cultural Barriers in Your Church. Breaking Racial and Cultural Barriers in the Church. And today's going to be a part one. It's really a very exciting uh, season and time in history to talk about this because, uh, well, for a number of reasons. One, the millennials and Generation Z, those 15 to 22-year-olds, uh, very passionate uh, for this happening in the church and in the world. Uh, the world we're living in is going through you know, massive changes. Uh, there's a mass movement of people going on around the world. Some would say and argue that's the largest mass movement of people in the world uh, that's ever happened in history. And they're including migrants, internally displaced people, refugees, asylum seekers, etc. Uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very large issue, and it's been a life work for me. Uh, I think my particular contribution to this discussion of bridging barriers uh, comes out of, of course, my own history here uh, in New York City and trying to think theologically and practically about it over the last uh, 30 to 40 years. And uh, I believe firmly that Emotionally Healthy Discipleship has something very important to say about this topic uh, because it was actually birthed partially out of the struggle uh, of bridging racial and cultural and class barriers uh, right here in our midst as I was becoming increasingly aware in my early days how uh, our present formation and discipleship models were not changing people deep enough to actually enable us to live in community across racial, class, cultural barriers. So in some ways, our life work that we call Emotionally Healthy Discipleship today was really birthed out of the pain and agony. We've got plenty of that around this issue. So uh, I, I want to just say a couple of things before I launch into this you know, vast topic. Um, one is uh, we've got to define success for each of us uh, clearly. You know, success is becoming the person God's called you to be and doing what God's called you to do. And, and so how this works out uh, with regards to bridging racial and cultural barriers is going to be different for each one of us, depending on where in the world we're living, uh, the particular season of ministry we're in, and our unique calling you know, from God. And so uh, you want to discern what that looks like as we go into this topic of bridging racial and cultural barriers, uh, because I don't want to put a yoke on you. That's not God's yoke for you. At the same time, I want to challenge you to be listening to his voice and what God might have for you. But the most important thing all of us do is, is God's will and uh, how that works out you know, for each of us. So let me begin by just giving you a bit of a background, uh, biblically and then personally with my own story. Uh, and then I want to dive into the specifics of you know, what are a few things that we've learned that are unique uh, uh, to our own story and emotionally healthy discipleship. So in the first century in the Roman Empire, uh, racism and prejudice was a major issue. In fact, racism and prejudice has been an issue all through human history all over the world. Whether we talk about in our context here in the United States, you know, African-American and Anglo or Native American and Anglo or Cypriot versus Turk or Palestinian versus Israeli or Korean and Japanese or Puerto Rican and South American or Peru and Ecuador, we're talking about Serbs and Bosnians and Croatians or, you know, tribal tensions uh, in Africa, Kurds and Turks and Iran and Iraq. I mean, Hindu and Muslim and Kashmir. We can go on. Nicaragua and Costa Rica, Dominicans and Haitians, you know, Northern Ireland. You know, but this, this issue of, of racism and prejudice is just, it's global. And it's them versus us. And, uh, 
and whether it's you know, these savages, these wicked barbarians, and us who are moral and civilized, and uh, and so or, or those who are beautiful and and uh, normal and quote rich, quote normal, quote rich, and the disabled and mentally challenged. And I, the more you get into this theme uh, of barriers, the vaster they are. You uh, again, whether we're talking about generational or uh, ethnic groups. Uh, I mean, I had a neighbor. Uh, a number of years ago here in Queens. He was from Serbia. And uh, during the Bosnian War in the 90s, early 90s, I remember going to him. And at the time, NATO was bombing uh, the Serbs uh, in the early 90s. And he just was so angry. And uh, he started talking about this battle of Kosovo in the late 1300s. Uh, and it all goes back to that. And he just got, I remember his face getting all red and his veins popping and just his rage towards the Americans, uh, our government and NATO. And, and I was like, oh my gosh, I, my understanding of this, at least that particular conflict in that part of the world uh, was so uh, limited. So scripture gives a tremendous vision of how Jesus uh, bridges the dividing walls of hostility between us. And again, just remember the first century you had uh, Hebrew Jews from Palestine. Uh, then you had Greek Jews who were scattered around the empire. Uh, and the Hebrew Jews in you know Palestine or present-day Israel, they felt superior to the uh, Greek or Hellenistic Jews from around the empire. So you had two distinct cultures in the church, and they had trouble getting along. We see that in Acts chapter 6. Then you had the Samaritans who were outcasts and would intermarry, who worshipped differently and didn't accept the Old Testament. They weren't pure. And then you had the heathen Gentiles who were considered dogs. For the, they, they were dogs, and they were created by God. They wrote in their writings to be fuel for the fires of hell. So Gentiles hated Jews. Jews hated Gentiles. And and so you in, the, in this incredible world of division, much like our world today, Jesus comes. And, and, he, and, and Ephesians and the book of Acts lays out how Jesus has destroyed the barrier through his blood uh, on the cross, and he's our peace. And and uh, it, it, great text, Ephesians chapter 2, and especially verse 14, how he has, you know, torn down the dividing wall of hostility that keeps people from gathering together. And uh, through his blood and the cross and his body, uh, the, a price of peace and a new people has been birthed called the people of God, a new human race, a new society, a new people, a new man, as it says in Ephesians 2.15, uh, called the body of Christ, the church. And one of the central tasks of the church as they preached the gospel around the world was to break down barriers of hostility and hatred. And, and in the early church and the first Christians, they viewed themselves as part of a worldwide family that transcended all national, social, and racial barriers. A new family uh, had been birthed called Christians. And so there was a great appreciation for different cultures and each gift. So that's a little theology there for you. And, and uh, as we go into my own story, is how I got into all this. I mean, I was raised in an Italian-American home uh, here in New York and outside New York City, uh, you know, very much in a subculture of Italian-Americans. And in fact, when I went to college, was the first time I actually began to interact with people who were uh, Protestants. Uh, again, out different culture, and uh, and I came to Christ at the age of nineteen. Uh, and what was so interesting about my conversion to Jesus was that I was almost immediately thrust into a community. It was in Diversity Christian Fellowship uh, that was multiracial uh, in terms of the leadership of the New York, New Jersey area, of uh, which I was a part of that university uh, conglomeration of of groups. And there was different, you know, 
folks leading in African Americans, women, poor. It's very multicultural. And so I, I got involved as I came to Christ. It was I was basically taught immediately that becoming a Christian and bridging racial and cultural barriers uh, were, 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 were all tied together, that you couldn't separate the two. And so understand, I came from a very limited subculture, a uh, very narrow subculture, very judgmental subculture. I mean, I remember growing up and I mean, my, uh, my family's from you know, Naples area of Italy and, and uh, you know, we were not to mingle with Sicilians, you know, other Italians from different parts of the uh, Italian peninsula. I mean, that's how racially, uh, we didn't like anybody. We didn't trust anybody. That's what I was taught. So here I was, I come to Christ and now I'm uh, mixing with all these Latinos, African-Americans, you know, Asians. I'm just, I'm in this whole world and this whole theme of uh, racism is being talked about constantly in the context of the gospel. And uh, so I come on staff in Diversity uh, Christian Fellowship, and the first place they send me is a college that was 80% African-American Latino. Uh, and I understand I'm a, a white guy here, and, and so there I am, I'm doing evangelism. I, I end up joining an African-American church on campus, and then I join a Hispanic bilingual church in our neighborhood. Uh, and uh, and then I actually I'm sent to Asia. I was, I was in a, a traveling evangelist. I was sent to the Philippines and did a little traveling in Hong Kong and uh, and doing evangelism uh, in Asia. And so I just was exposed to a lot very early on, uh, and it was really quite a gift. But but it really was listening to stories of people of you know who were very different from me. And then I began to read books, and, and again our context here and. New York, the racial issue is massive, and just reading story, books about, you know, before the Mayflower and autobiography of Malcolm X and others, and I, I was being discipled into just entering and understanding how uh, different cultures, and especially, you know, African Americans, what it was like for the last three, four hundred years growing up black in America. So I was learning, I, I was growing, I, I was transformed by it. I, uh, and I just, to me, it was all I, I, bridging barriers and the gospel were just so tied together for me biblically that uh, there wasn't a question for me. Once I, I went to seminary and uh, uh, did my internship, I remember in the South Bronx uh, here in uh, New York at the time, South Bronx was a very rough neighborhood. Uh, but when I graduated, there wasn't a question about me, what, what kind of church or what kind of ministry I was going to be involved in. Of course, I was going to be involved in something that was going to bridge racial cultural barriers. So that was just, you know, for me, it was just part of the gospel. And so I, you know, we spent a year in Latin America learning Spanish at the seminary and came back and uh, spent a year actually immersed in uh, the subculture of immigrants coming into our country, mostly illegal uh, from Latin America, uh, immersed in that whole culture of folks who were fleeing at that time, El Salvador death squads and uh, the Nicaraguan war uh, and Colombia drug cartels and and just listening to stories. And it's just, it was, again, another immersion. And, and so we planted New Life Fellowship Church in uh, 1987. Uh, it was very intentional about we were going to, uh, um, you know, reach people who didn't know Jesus, of course. and But we were going to demonstrate the love of Christ across racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers. And, and the reason we ended up choosing the particular part of New York City that we're in, uh, which is uh, Queens and Elmhurst Corona part of Queens, is because it was considered at the time, it still is, one of the most multi-ethnic uh, places in the world uh, with 123 nations in the neighborhood. Uh, it's one of the poorest areas of New York. Uh, but it was the richness of who was there and and that it would be a tremendous location because uh, everybody's there. In fact, even now to this day, New Life Fellowship has you know 75 plus nations in it. You know, almost every country of Asia 
from Chinese to Filipino to Indonesian to Koreans to every country of Latin America, from Peruvians to uh, Guatemalans to Argentinians to African-Americans to West Indians to Africans as well, uh, Eastern Europeans, uh, a few Western Europeans, but a lot of Eastern Europeans and uh, Arabs and Jews and Anglos and all different classes of people as well. So it's a very much a, a hotbed and it was incredible place to plant a church and I was a huge learning. It was very intentional as we planted a church. I, I felt very led by God to do that. I didn't want to just talk about bridging Paris. I wanted to actually see the power of the gospel at work. Uh, and uh, so there we go. We launched in 1987 and, and we hit this wall by, you know, very early on, years three, four, five, and six, and that I realized that the racial tensions in particular were so vast uh, and so, so large that has we were the way we were doing discipleship and the way I was taught was not going to be enough. Uh, much more was needed, and uh, so we had a split in our Spanish congregation, which many of you know about. It's written about in the different books, and it was at that time uh, I I didn't I was excavating what happened in the split, and there was lots of complexity to it. But one of the reasons had to do with it was racial, uh, and that we had a light skinned. Um, and a dark-skinned leader, again from Latin America, Colombian, Dominican, uh, and I, I didn't really understand how the racial dynamics worked out in Latin America. I'll never forget someone giving me a book at that time. Said Pete, you don't get it, uh, and he handed me a book. Uh, it was called The Americas by Peter Wynn, and it gave the history of each country of Latin America, and the whole race dynamic, and of course slavery and colonization, and how color of skin impacted and has impacted, continues to impact the history of Latin America, and then of course. As they immigrate to the United States, they, everyone would bring it with them. And uh, I just couldn't believe how deep uh, the differences were. How It was such an eye-opener for me. And uh, I really appreciate it when that, uh, you know, Latinos in our church was saw me trying to wrestle with how that split happened. And I was just so clueless to the whole racial dynamic. And so I've been listening and, and I'm, I'm learning still so much. And I've been in this now, you know, for a very long time. I'm listening to stories, you know, again, stories, whether it's someone from you know, China and China you know, is its own empire. It's so massive and the differences and ethnicities and tensions culturally and uh, racially within China are, are so vast. And they have Koreans and their whole history and Indonesians and Malaysians. And again, you think of Ecuadorians and Colombians. I, it just goes on. It's just, it, there's so much there to learn. And so I love living in Queens and I love being here. It's a marvel to me. And so, but let me just mention a few key decisions or moments in our own church history that uh, you know, made a real made a, I think a, a difference because New Life Fellowship Church. I'm not the lead pastor anymore. I was for the first 26 years, and it's been six full years since uh, a new lead pastor has taken over, and the church is thriving, and, and it continues to be one of the most multiracial, multicultural churches uh, in the United States. And but part of it is with some some key moments or intentionality that remains to this day in the present leadership. Uh, and it really is a, a multiracial church on all levels of the church, and it's seamless. That's what's so beautiful about it. Uh, it's so natural, um, and yet it's the tensions are, are talked about, and it's, it's a beautiful you know combination. And those in leadership are doing a great job with it. But here's a, it's a few key moments or decisions we made. I, I think that were significant, and one is we had a very clear non-negotiable negotiable mission, uh, and uh, it was in our mission state to bridge bridge racial, cultural, economic. Uh, barriers. And so that was non-negotiable. And we lost people from day one on it. Not everybody was as committed to it as we were. And our location uh, was significant for that. And 
we really did believe it was the, I wanted to see the power of the gospel and uh, not just preach about it. And I think we, we, that commitment was significant. I think out of that, there was a willingness to go slow and to suffer. If you ask Jerry, my wife, if she was on this podcast and say, what was the key to you know, new life growing into being the community she is today over all these years, she would say suffering, uh, that there was a lot of suffering involved and on, all, on, on a part of many people. Uh, because you're misunderstood, you've got to go slow. Um, if you want to go fast, this is not the thing to be involved in. Uh, and I once, we once had an intern years ago, gifted intern, and you know he came to be an intern at our church because he really wanted to, you know, eventually plant a multiracial church, a multicultural church. And when he realized how hard it was and the long conversations that were needed, etc., and I said to him, I said, I don't forget the conversation. I said to him, I said, if you're going to do this, um, you're not going to build a, a mega church. I said, if your goal is a mega church, uh, then don't don't even mess with this because uh, it's just it's too complicated to be very difficult. And he said, well, then I'm not then I'm not doing this multiracial thing. And he didn't. Um, but at least he was honest about it. Uh, and so I, I just think of Philippians 1, where Paul says, it's been granted you not only to, you know, believe in the gospel, but to suffer as well. So I, I think that suffering is a piece. And again, there's, there's a, no, a knowledge of Jesus that comes out of it that's beautiful. Then there's some thoughtful, prayerful choices we, we had to make from our location to hires, to staffing, to power, to succession, and, and just is this thoughtful, prayerful, difficult choices that have to be made. And we, we made a number of them. Uh, and uh, we could have bought a building in another area with parking. Uh, and uh, we probably could have still been multiracial, but we would have lopped off the bottom 20% of our church, which would not be able to get to our place because it wouldn't be near a subway. And that would have been more of a middle-class church only. And uh, so then there was a commitment to emotionally healthy discipleship. Uh, and who who's at the table? You know, what does it mean to be part of this church? It was a commitment to a deep spirituality. Uh, we had to re redefine maturity as loving well. And uh, again, I think our early years of failure of traditional, I'll call it evangelical discipleship, it's just not enough. It doesn't change people deeply. That's why we like to say, you know, the question is, you know, who can your son or daughter not marry? And then we'll know if the gospel deeply changed you or not. And so everything from facing your shadow and you know, slowing down for loving union. These are these are critical issues of, of, uh, and we'll get into it. You know, along the way here. But and then finally, there was a there was a language out of that discipleship paradigm to engage in very difficult conversations because you have to be able to have difficult conversations with, out of self awareness, deep self awareness on race, power. Uh, you've got to be able to listen to uncomfortable things. Uh, and we used to say that, you know, emotionally healthy discipleship and racial reconciliation are inseparable, that uh, you need uh, EH discipleship to be able to go down this road and sustain it over decades and really have a community that's not just perfunctory in the same room together for worship, but actually living in community uh, in houses together in friendships and submitting to uh power, you know, other people who are different than you, who are not your skin color or social class. And that takes a lot. So the question is, what's the contribution of emotionally healthy discipleship uh, to this whole discussion? So I've got, I got five or six things here, and I'm, I'm just going to mention the first two or three, and then I'm going to, you know, next, you know, podcast, we'll get into uh, part two. But I, I, I let, let me just share a few things that were the 
or the contribution of EH discipleship to this discussion. The first is this, that is this intense passion for Jesus, uh, the radical edge of a slow down spirituality. That, let me tell you a story. I once gave a, I guess it was a lecture at, at uh, a well-known seminary and um, a Fuller, it was Fuller Seminary. And, on, and they, it was on racial reconciliation and bridging barriers. This is a number of years ago, and there was a, a professor uh, in the room. And when I was finished and I answered some questions, he casually said, he goes, the reason new life has, I believe, he said, it, it, been able to succeed is because while you're passionate for reconciliation, your first, your passion above that is Jesus. And when he said that, I, I said, I got it. And, and this, I think, I think to me, bridging racial, cultural, economic barriers between people is a byproduct of passion for Jesus. But we are, uh, we are passionate for the person of Jesus, for a relationship with Jesus who loved and died for us and rose from the dead. That, so we call people to a radical spirituality, um, to a desert spirituality, and uh, a, a monastic radical call to leave uh, I would say leave the world and leave the American church in our context and, and go to the desert and get to Jesus. And we, get, we go to the desert in, within, within, in, in community. But there's this call to leave everything for Jesus. And so silence and stillness, you know, go to your cell. Your cell will teach you everything. And what's interesting, because when I first got exposed to the depth of monasticism in 2003, 2004, and brought that into the package here of reconciliation, I... I realized that the Desert Fathers were, were Africans. And again, in our context, say a quarter of our church is African-American or you know, West Indian, there's a really big issue. It's just because most people associate monasticism with white European Christianity. Uh, and uh, it was a wonderful discovery to realize, no, the Desert Fathers were anything but white Europeans. It really came from the south of Europe. It came from Africa. And uh, they're the ones who uh, really recovered the tradition of Elijah John the Baptist, Moses in the desert, that whole desert tradition of spirituality that we find throughout the Old Testament uh, and was reignited with John the Baptist, of course, and, and Jesus in the desert. But that, that monasticism, which came out of that, you know, along with the local churches, came out of North Africa. So I was able to excavate that and apply it to our context. And the, the sayings of the Desert Father was, it became very important to us that we are all uh, leaving uh, traditional religion or just going to church and pursuing Jesus. You know, Psalm 27, 4, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty and to seek him in his temple. And so silence, solitude, Sabbath, a rule of life, all that uh, is wrapped around an intense passion for Jesus. And so I, I would argue that that it's, it's first Jesus and what flows out of that, of course, is reconciliation, but it's first about Jesus. Otherwise, reconciliation becomes its own idolatry. And uh, it's not sustainable. There's nothing above Jesus. It is just, it is Jesus. And we listen to him. Then the second out of that was we utilized uh, genograms uh, for self-awareness and, and transformation. Uh, we utilized genograms. And genograms is, is a tool uh, to go back to look at your family and over three to four generations and look at the what's hindering and holding you back from going into the future God has for you. And so to understand generational racism or classism or sexism, 
uh, that on, on, a, on a personal level, on a church level, on a denominational level, societal level, is all is all very very relevant. And so, and we've done genograms with people. Uh, and again, it's one of the tools uh, out of emotional discipleship. Uh, and there's there's a tool for the church, and there's a tool for leadership. Um, and we've done genograms with rich people and poor people, with upper class to middle class to lower class, highly educated, you know, not educated people. Uh, uh, blue collar, white collar, all ages, and we've done it with countries. We, we, I mean, we've done hundreds and hundreds and I don't know thousands, maybe of genograms with people from all over the world, and uh, it, it's incredible. Uh, but and, and, and because you see, what you realize is that brokenness and sin uh, is in every culture, every family, every country. Uh, it doesn't matter your social class, the color of your skin. Uh, whether it's abuse or pain or divorce or family secrets or betrayals or tragedy or earthquake events. I mean, every family is deeply broken. And when we look at the story of Joseph and his brokenness of his family, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or David's story, uh, it is a story of, of, of just families marked by sin. Uh, and so when you we utilize genograms as one of, the, one of the major tools to do to help people become self-aware so that Jesus can get into the beneath the iceberg of your life and transform you for the future. But when you look at genograms, uh, you begin to see a lot of things and um, it just breaks you. And, and uh, actually I'm convinced it breaks powers of principalities as well. And and uh, so then of course it has larger applications of uh you know, our country in our the United States of America, we've got a we've got a history. Every country's got a history. Australia's got a history, and England's got a history. You know, Great Britain's got a history, and uh, you know, we have a history of four hundred years of slavery. We've got a history of what happened to the Native Americans. You know, when we came here, and uh, and and uh, so there's a genogram of racism and slavery that you know is here in in the American church, and so. That genogram, where their sin needs to be addressed, and going forward, every denomination has a genogram, uh, and it's very interesting. Look at the history of denominations. What does it mean to take the best and the gifts of God that birthed that movement, the charism, the grace? And what does it look also to discard the parts of that movement that are just unhealthy that, that we don't want to bring into the future? But the maturity to look at a denomination or a local church at their at, at our histories and say, what do we want to keep for the future? What do we want to discard uh, that doesn't belong here? That's why church history is so important. It matters. And awareness is key because you, because you can name and break the demonic power of things that hold us back. Personally, in families, uh, in races, in, in churches, in denominations, in countries. And I remember reading uh, a few years ago the, the history of uh, King Leopold from Belgium and Africa and their whole history of the Congo. And I just remember it was just, it was just like, whoa, and it, you know, and... and Again, it's history is just unbelievable, and again, look, it, it, it made sense, you know. It's like wow, um, and some of the problems we're looking at today and how they go back, and uh, what's in with India, uh, and and some of the history and perspective there. Or, uh, and again, there's a theme, and I read about it a number of years ago, and did some study on the multi generational transmission transmission of trauma, and how we transmit trauma from one generation to another unless we deal with it, name it, and break it. Uh, and, uh, and so, again, the reason this genogram thing is so critical is because I, I, it helps with awareness, openness to Jesus for transformation, and uh, we can get to the place and say, I'm a Christian, uh, 
first. You know, I'm a Christian and I'm Italian-American. I'm a Christian and I am German. I'm a Christian and I am African-American. I'm a Christian and I am Peruvian. But I'm first a Christian uh, and I'm, I'm Canadian or I'm, you know, I'm Jewish or I'm Arab. But I'm first a Christian. And so our identity gets clear. My first loyalty is to Jesus and being part of his new family. And how do I do life in the new family of Jesus? Uh, and out of that, there's a great brokenness uh, and, and vulnerability and weakness. So, so we're going, listen, we talk about bridging race and culture. Uh, we're dealing with powers of principalities, Ephesians chapter 6. Make no mistake about it. This is very big stuff. This is, uh, you know, these are, these, are, these are principalities. This is, they, they keep people divided and, and foment hatred and division, uh, which, which is a byproduct of sin. Uh, but there are big demons on this that keep people divided. And so when we get involved in bridging race and culture, make no mistake about it, we are involved in serious warfare. Uh, and so that's why it's so important for you to do your inner work and we engage in a deep spirituality with Jesus as we go into it. So uh, let me just pause for a moment here. I, I, I want to encourage you again. I want to encourage you to, to go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash launch and take a look at the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course. You can get a couple free samples there to look at. Uh, but look at this course Uh uh, because it is our way of, of bringing a serious discipleship that deeply changes lives so we can actually bridge racial, cultural barriers. I, again, I don't know how we do it unless we do bring people into a deep spirituality with Jesus and a deep self-awareness of how we've been impacted by our past before we go into issues that are as large, I mean, the, large as this one. And uh, so go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash launch. Take a look at that in the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course. So um, listen, the God-given distinctive of every culture is going to be celebrated as a gift for the glory of God uh, at the end of history. You know, God has sown into thousands of cultures throughout history aspects of his image in humanity. And uh, Jesus does not erase cultural distinctives or obliterate cultures and races in the world to come. But we will. Revelation gives us a vision that we will celebrate the gifts and distinctives that God's given each people and culture that are going to be offered for his glory. And uh, he's going to take what's useful and transform it into a instrument for the praise of his glory. And so our uniqueness is not meant to isolate us from each other or create barriers. It's actually meant to enrich us. And we're going to be, get free. And each tribe and family and individual is going to be brought as part of a large orchestra in the glory of God in Revelation 21. Just imagine the multicultural chorus from all ages of history. Ancient Israel, Levites, psalmists singing, clapping African saints, European reformers with their hymns. Monks with their Gregorian and Ethiopian Coptic chants, Latin American Pentecostals, rappers, and I mean, research the own glo your glory and honor of your own nationality and ethnicity. Uh, we all see the fall in this, but but the beauty of it, and that we will one day bring this to the altar for the glory of His name. We once had an exercise at our church. We did it a few times, and people came to you know forward and said, "Hi, I'm from whatever country they were from." One of the gifts I believe my culture brings to the larger body of Christ is, you can fill that out, but just think what's around you and imagine that, you know, people say, I am from, again, whatever country they're from, Syria. And one of the gifts I believe my culture brings to the larger body of Christ is, because there really is a great gift in this. So, boy, let me stop here. There's so much more I want to say. I'm going to have to go bring this into part two. Who knows? I may end up having a part three. It's been fantastic to be with you. God is doing something around the world. May we, like Abraham, follow Jesus and learn of our gift and bring it to the larger body of Christ and move out of our, our comfort zones, whatever that might look like for you. 
And uh, again, may the kingdom of God expand throughout the earth and may the world know that Jesus really is Lord. So thank you very much. It's been great to be with you. I look forward to being with next week on part two of this. And we'll get into some of the other larger issues like how do you create a new language and a new culture and the new family of Jesus, how you embrace grief, grief and loss as a, as a means of God to unite us and enlarge our hearts, how do you create sacred space between people very different than us, how, how do we value brokenness and vulnerability in this whole process. So got lots to talk about. Look forward to seeing you next week. God bless you, everybody. You have a wonderful day. Blessings. <laughs>